Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme this afternoon by John Paddock. John is the CEO of Thurrock Centre for Independent Living, a charity that provides support for disabled people. John, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. No problem. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure having you, John. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So to begin with, if we look at that word leader and just stick that aside for a moment, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Sure. I think, uh, you know, there's much said about strong leadership and sense of direction. But the reality is, with my experience over the years, you know, both in the Thorough Centre for Independent Living, which is a relatively small organisation, back to organisations of 50,000, 60,000 I've worked in in the past, is that leaders can set the agenda and set the vision, but they need to ensure it's understood and communicated. I mean, my, in my definition of vision, of the future and direction of a, an entity is... Um, conglomerate of everybody's imaginations. We've mm. sat around a boardroom or sat around a conference table and asked people in the future to project a vision of how they saw the company now and in the future. It's the congruence of those visions which would be the reality of what drives an organisation. Because the one thing I've learned as a leader, if you can't communicate effectively that shared vision of the future, you are not going to be able to be at the point of interaction, the point of management decisions, of infrastructure decisions, or at the customer service end, every time, all the time. You rely on the shared vision amongst every level of the organization to drive the right decisions, to develop and deliver the right service. So, you know, I used to talk about, certainly in the world of financial services, what I worked and was in charge of big change, cultural change programs there. Mm about turning the super tanker. It's not like that. It's about turning a vast fleet of fishing boats who are actually all strapped together. And unless the captains of those devolved fishing boats turn the wheels in the same direction at the same time, then you're not going anywhere. So it's about that strength of communication, about the reality, about the passion of the thing you're trying to achieve and how effective you are in communicating that and living by those tenets fulfilled. Because nothing speaks louder than people's observations of your behaviour and your activity. So you have to really do think about that leadership by example. Mm. I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, from that point of view, John. It's a very collaborative and a very inclusive form of uh, leadership for sure. And um, a lot of that is drawn, of course, as you mentioned there, from your uh, many years experience in the the retail banking industry. Um, But as well as experience, are there any individuals that perhaps you've sort of looked up to during your career, maybe people that you've worked for that have perhaps been an inspiration to you? Um, Yes, they have been. And each for a different reason, I think. Um, certainly the great communicators, you know, they've been, you know, something to sit back and admire. I mean, I, I remember at the age of 21 on the on a management development course being asked to stand up and give an after-dinner speech. Um, and I stood there whole shaking with trepidation. But over time, 
you get this chance to explore your capabilities and your abilities in that sort of vein. And uh, I ended up you know, having the opportunity to address you know, large conferences, 2,000 people, et cetera, et cetera. And you start to lose your fear of, of just being under scrutiny. And you do that by sharing your passion and making your passion very transparent. And that's where you get then the validation from the audience. And it's those good communicators I used to see in the past. Then I guess there were a group who were the great intellect. They had a different role. But then their ability to analyze and, and, and see situations was, you know, was again quite inspirational. You know, I had a great learning, you know, at one point uh, where I, was promoted to replace my my former boss, um, having run um, a, a, an operation centre for about a thousand people, and my successor was chosen not by me but by high management. A decision I was greatly concerned with because I knew he had, didn't necessarily agree with my style of management. But what I learned from that process and the subsequent two years of observing him, that having given up my quote baby. Of operation of an operation centre, he took it in a different direction, but it's still broadly forward. You know, you, you, there is no one mould I would suggest mm. um, that would suit good leadership. It can come from a number of angles, and of course, it's important to realise. My, my learning from that, by the way, was that I'm not always right, and my style isn't always right. But nevertheless, there are people that do it totally differently, but just as well, if not better. That was a great point at which I then came to understand, something I've borne with me ever since, is one of the greatest attributes of a leader, aside from the outward going stuff I've talked about, is the ability to select people to work for them. And usually people who are far better than them and compose that team where you have absolute trust in what's going on. I remember I ran a, an outsourcing company, a couple thousand people, two and a half thousand people um, in Australia for a time. We had a new head office and we had a lovely glitzy glass encased offices. And uh, I was walking a director of, a, of one of our customers uh, um, down a corridor. And in the boardroom, there was obviously some form of management meeting going on. Very heated. There were six people around the table. And there were people standing, people sitting down. There was a whiteboard being rubbed out and rewritten on. And it was very animated. And my guests were quite alarmed. And I said, you know, he said, I, I said to you, I've got no idea what's going on in that room. But I can have absolute confidence that what they will come to is a decision which is absolutely the right way for going forward because I felt they had the capability and my little role was to get them imbued in that sense of the vision and future going forward. I can see exactly where you're coming from, John, and I think it's an incredible piece of advice for any aspiring leaders looking to make it in business out there who may be tuning into this, that you should surround yourself with people who are almost better than you, to quote Nelson Mandela, actually. Um, And it's important as well as a leader, as you mentioned there, to be adaptable and flexible because 
leadership comes in many different forms and in many different faces and different approaches can work and sometimes it takes different approaches to match with different personalities and adaptability and flexibility are two incredibly important qualities as well in the context of the here and now with the emergence of COVID-19 no less and the need for businesses to adapt and leaders to really steer their way through this unprecedented crisis. Um, For your industry John how has it been navigating the pandemic itself over the last few months? Because I can imagine the challenges there have been tremendous in that regard. Well, they have. I mean, the nature of the work of the, uh, the Centre for Independent Living, but also the, the other areas of the third sector that I get involved in, our client base is amongst the most vulnerable in society, um, both from a physical health point of view as well as a mental well-being point of view. So many, many have been affected by the um, shielding instructions and had letters from NHS taking them completely out of circulation. They have become more vulnerable, more isolated, again, predominantly from a mental well-being point of view. Then there are the others who can't quite understand what's going on um, but realise they can't access the sort of group services that they had they were used to in the past, um, people with learning difficulties, people with autism, etc., find it very difficult to understand and accept the change in the way of life. And then the group of customers who were reliant upon us to navigate the systems of government, local government and national government, in terms of claiming for personal independence payment or universal credit or how, you know, whatever it may be, um, who rely on people being able to translate their life experiences they can express only verbally and not write down through people like us who would advocate for them and complete those sorts of um, highly bureaucratic forms. Um, they've been virtually, you know, that process of application has virtually stopped, um, predominantly because there's a need for physical contact in terms of exchange of correspondence, proof of medical conditions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. So there's been a range of impacts, but by and large, it's been a huge challenge for them. Um, we've been part of our organisation has helped to be part of for those most vulnerable and stranded at home, supplying them with medications and um, food, etc., when needed. Um, we have arranged with another supplier that every customer of the organisation is contacted on a least weekly and some on a daily basis by phone to have a chat and to see how they're getting on and whether indeed their carers are impacted and how that we could help facilitate some break potentially for them. Um, it is, has been a colossal you know, blow for many. Amongst the elderly, we see a continual and sustained group who are those who are being currently diagnosed with memory issues early days of memory issues with Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia who come to us for completion of powers, lasting powers of attorney, an essential tool to ensure that their wishes and their loved one's wishes are, are capable of being um, expressed and enforced um, when someone starts to lose their overall capacity. They continue to ring up the office and say, we need this done now, we need this done soon, but it's just not feasible. I mean, we can talk about technology support, 
but that the, the people we interface with, that's a minority, a vast minor, minority situation. Predominantly, we have to be face-to-face to understand what's going on and the real wishes of people. So it's, it's great challenging times. We have maintained the contact. We have maintained the sort of virtual hugs and the arms around people. We have given advice by telephone or where possible through team meetings or Zoom meetings, etc. But we're not capable of delivering the service or services on a sustained basis because of the nature of the client base. And thinking now about what the next 12 to 18 months may hold for yourself and for Thurrock Centre for Independent Living as we move into the next stage of the pandemic and embrace the challenges of the new normal. What do you envision and what do you hope to achieve during that period? Well, I think there are there's a, a middle area where we can start to mobilise office space, obviously with new guidelines around PPE or PPE or distancing or um, the wearing of masks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, to prepare the offices for the next step. I mean, uh, we have been uh, we have a shared uh, block office block with um, other charities. Um, we have been locked out of that uh, facility for well ever since the start of lockdown. Um, so we've not even managed to get in to sort of start prepare yet. So next week, we will have limited access to start to reorganize the physical appointment-only um, appointments to help people start to regain control over their lives and give them some choice in the nature of their lives going forward. That's the interim way forward. Um, on a There will be a backlog, no doubt, well, we know there is, of both those that are going to um, need financial support through the benefit systems, whatever benefit that might be, those, as I say, with the uh, lasting powers of attorney, which we provide for free, um, and one of the few organisations around the UK that does. And then there's a group of people who we support gain or sustain employment, both with mental health issues, mental well-being issues, and physical disabilities or learning disabilities. Those people will be casualties of any employment fallout from the crisis over the medium and longer term and will need, again, more support to enable them to try and achieve some life goals through employment, no matter whether that's paid employment or voluntary employment. Um, they, they will be nervous, I'm sure. People will need reassuring that whilst you know, coronavirus is with us in, a, in an element of risk, that those risks can be mitigated um, by appropriate you know, procedures and, and being careful and, and suitable employers. Um, so that will become the new way forward. And our role, of course, will be to be the champions of that safety for those individuals who might seek employment. So whether it's somebody that might be asked to push trolleys around Tesco or somebody that has mental health issues, has, has struggled to maintain um, you know, an accountancy role but needs just the, the reassurance and the occasional sense of mentoring that they are looking after themselves, then we can be there you know, in a perhaps a different physical type way, but we will still be there. Certainly going to be an interesting uh, time for sure, John. And um, I mm-hmm. think, you know, given how 
it's one thing speculating what the future might bring and then it's another thing entirely looking back and analysing exactly what's happened. I think it would actually be fantastic to have you back on the programme in future just to see exactly what has changed in the time between and catch up on how Thurrock Centre for Independent Living is uh, getting on just because it's been such a pleasure having you on the air with us today and discussing these issues. Yeah, well, thank you for having us. You know, it, we are a small cog in the wheel, but um, an important one in many people's lives. So we'd love to come back and talk about how things have gone in the, in the, in the future. That's exactly it. It's wonderful to give those authentic voices from various aspects of British industry, a, um, of course, um, a platform to speak out um, in this sense. And John, most importantly, until we do speak again in future, which I'm sure we will, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on in the world, because we're certainly not out of the woods with regard to COVID-19 yet. No, indeed. Yes. And thank you for that. And uh, just a reminder to everybody, of course, to those that are young or are fit as a fiddle, the aggregations in places and clubs and whatever too early in dangers, perhaps not them, but the more vulnerable amongst us, be it by age or infirmity. Most certainly. And for those tuning in, I would implore you to remain sensible, look after yourselves, look after others, because it really does make a difference in saving lives i was speaking there to john paddock the ceo of thurrock center for independent living and coming up next on today's program i'll be handing over to matthew o'neill for his exclusive interview with former education secretary lord blunkett lord blunkett is today an active member of the house of lords chairman of the leaders council of great britain and northern ireland and former labor mp and secretary of state during his political career lord blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from 
not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care 
system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and 
chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. 
we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's 
the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much if i were in government and i always think of things in that context what would i do if i were in government i would be on the side from 
the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.